thinking about it this past week and I've got a change for your handout here because I decided that what Jesus says at the end of chapter 12 is not really a theme um, an added theme and it's on your sheet it's in uh, it's under you know the, the overall theme of God the Son and it's letter F um to be redeemer of the elect and judge of the evil, of evil. And really, that is, I decided that what Jesus is saying there at the end is really just a summary of what's already happened in that chapter. Um, Jesus, the Messiah of the Jews, Jesus, the Christ of the Gentiles, and Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So what we have there is him saving the world and us receiving peace through that so uh, uh, that's really just kind of what he's saying at the end there uh, that he is the redeemer of the elect so uh, I'm going to be I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on these uh, uh, on these outlines as we go along and I'm going to print out final copies of it <laughs> when we get to the end uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's just a change um, and again, I'm going to go ahead and say this again because it'll come up again later on if we get that far today. The words he says that the words he's delivering to them right then will judge them, uh, and it's not a matter anymore of sin, but of belief and unbelief. Uh, and so this this uh, comes up again later uh, as we proceed. So we'll go into chapter 13. Uh, who would like to be the voluntary reader for chapter 13? Okay. Uh, so, anybody? can anybody remember what happens in chapter 13? What event happens? Christ washes the disciples' feet. He washes the disciples' feet, and that, that is the one event, and it, and it opens up chapter 13. In, in John's typical fashion. So the theme here is that, you know, why? here's my question, why did the Logos come? He came to be our sanctification. And this is why John presents the washing of the disciples' feet. It's, uh, the teaching there is about ongoing grace. Um, so, David, if you could uh, just go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 10. Chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God. Returning to God. So he got up from the 
took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. You are clean, though not every one of you. Okay, so first of all, we'll start off by uh, pointing out that the word sanctify means to set aside for holy use. Uh, so uh, we can uh, take this uh, act of washing and make several connections with it. Uh, for one thing, uh, it continues the connection to baptism, uh, which, which David just read in, in verses 8 through 10. Uh, you are washed in me. You know, you are completely washed. Uh, you only need to have your feet cleaned. Uh, uh, there's a, a lesson here about service to one another, which uh, we didn't read, but uh, uh, he goes on to point out that, that he wants each of them to serve each other in the same way. Uh, but there's also a lesson here about confession and absolution. Uh, the model here is of the oriental bath. <clears throat> Jesus says those who have been bathed are clean. They only need their feet washed. So you would go to the public bath. And you would bathe yourself. You would be clean. But you've got to walk home. And you're wearing sandals. So your feet get dirty. So when you go into your house, your servant is there to wash your feet. And now you're, you're completely clean. Uh, so that's the model that he's got. And so the ordinary bath would be our baptism of forgiveness. But then we still have to wash our feet on a daily basis. You know, our walk in the world dirties us. Uh, and uh, James 15 ties these two concepts together of confession and absolution. Uh, in 5.16 he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So James tells us flatly uh, to confess our sins to one another and to be healed, you know, to be absolved, uh, basically the healed of your guilt, of your ongoing sin, uh, or the guilty feelings anyway. So there's one thing that uh, we can pull from this event. Uh, another thing is, as uh, the first Eucharist is approaching, a parallel can be made with the two sacraments, Eucharist and baptism. One is experienced and discerned once, uh, uh, as baptism is, and the other is experienced and discerned repeatedly. So it is, uh, it is like salvation, sanctification. Again, baptism is kind of the sign of our salvation. The Eucharist is our ongoing relationship with Christ, and that is our sanctification. 
Uh, David, if you could read verse 23. Leaning him back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Oh, that's about the mm-hmm. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Okay, so uh, some, some translations say leaning on his breast. So here we have the model of the disciple and his master. Um, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, and he, the disciple obviously loved Jesus as well. And uh, this two-way relationship of discipleship works sanctification. That's what works it out. Um, um, so another thing that we can bring from this is a lesson from the temple vessels from the law Uh, Leviticus 6.28 says of the sin offering and this is the sin offering which was offered time and time again uh, the earthenware vessel in which it is boiled the sin offering uh, whatever it was uh, shall be broken, but if it is bo- boiled in a bronze vessel, that shall be scoured and rinsed in water. So, you know, if you were using a, a metal container, that could be purified through washing. Whereas the earthenware, you know, it's kind of porous, and it would, it, it, according to the law, it needed to be destroyed. But a bronze vessel would be cleansed with water. So this is, again, what Jesus is teaching. We need to be, uh, after confessing our sin, making our sin offering of confession, we need to be cleansed with water. And this is what he's illustrating with this uh, washing of the feet. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians six eleven, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were purified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So this is all part of sanctification. And this is, you know, the theme that John is building here through this event. So any any uh, thoughts about that before we move along? Water is oftentimes a symbol of spirit. Mm-hmm. So when, when, when water. Yes, any other thoughts? Okay, so uh, now we've got somebody here. One of these things doesn't belong. Who is there who doesn't really belong? <laughs> you know, Jesus knew who it was. Uh, yes, verse 27. David. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Okay, we've got Judas here. Uh, with, with Satan uh, starting to do his actual work. Uh, and uh, we had a, uh, a mention of this way back in verse, or in chapter 6, verse 70, because it's a long chapter. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? So this, is, <laughs> this was not unknown to them. And uh, here it's finally playing out. Uh, and uh, so the humility of Christ's service, washing their feet, even the, the feet of the devil, kind of collides with the arrogance of Judas' betrayal. You know, things aren't going the way Judas, Judas thinks they ought to. 
So he's going to do the work of Satan here. Yeah. He has, he has no belief in who this is at all. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a lot of people have guessed of what of what were Judas' motivations, but if Judas was really still clinging to this idea that Christ was going to destroy the Romans and, yeah. and restore the kingdom, this this would have he would have hated this. Oh, it's just, yeah. Well, he says that about the, the anointing of the of the head of Jesus too. Wasting. Yeah. You're yeah. Here, man. Yeah, money. You waste money. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Jesus. It's interesting that he takes communion. Well, I I'm not sure that's true. It's in another word he does. Uh, well, from Matthew, it sounds like he probably left before communion. I know, but it's, it's, it's sort of controversial. I think. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's worth kind of working out what that timeline is. Well, this was this was the bread of the meal, you know, after. The, the, the Eucharist well, was afterwards. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, Jesus in, again in, in six seventy, Jesus said, "Didn't I? Did not I choose you twelve? So, uh, but one of the twelve is a devil, which leaves what? Eleven. <laughs> Eleven. <laughs> yes. Nobody said there would be math. <laughs> If Walt was here, he would. What would he say about the number eleven? I don't know. <laughs> you know, incompleteness. incomplete discipleship. So Judas has no sanctification. He has no discipleship, and he leaves them with eleven, eleven, uh, eleven apostles there. So uh, one of the things that I've, I've read, I think, before is that some people wonder if Jesus was I mean, Judas. Excuse me, Judas was uh, actually possessed. Uh, Satan coming into him, and yeah. Jesus calling him a devil, which is a demon. I mean, yeah. The devil and demon are synonymous terms, and, and yeah. terms of the Greek. So, diabolos. So, I don't know. It might have actually literally been possessed by, by a demon. It, cert- it certainly sounds like that here, yeah. and then later on when he regrets it. Yeah. yeah. That's, when, that's when Satan has spit him out. Yeah. yeah. This is what Satan does. He chews you up, he spits you out. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> It's in Luke. Okay. Well, let's let's not get stuck on that. Um, but it's I think it's significant that her, you know, the, the whole concept of communion is belief. Well, it yeah. Works. If you truly believe that you well, are taking in Christ into yeah. yourself, if you Certainly. know it's meaningless, and so for Judas, it's totally meaningless. Yeah. Everything was. All right. Um, Hmm, where are we? Okay, so at uh, David, if you could read uh, 13, uh, 35, 4 and 5, 35. 13, what now? 34 and 35. 34 35. A new covenant I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, so this is the new commandment, and it's not something that is demanding some impossible obedience uh, like the commandment of the law, the Ten Commandments, uh, but it's based on grace and love. Okay, so now 37 and 38. 
Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth. For the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So he makes this, uh, he teaches this stuff about relationship with him and the sanctification, the constant confession and need for confession and cleansing. And it follows up with this warning to Peter. And uh, this is one of those scenes which is familiar to us from the synoptics, which John loves to leave out. But he put this in for a reason. And that reason will play out in the epilogue. So just kind of keep that in mind <laughs> um, as, uh, as we go on. But it has to do with uh, the ongoing failure that we experience all the time and uh, the cleansing that is necessary after that. Okay, Dave, one more. Uh, 1331. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Okay, so this is the opening statement of a very long passage of teaching about the Godhead. Um, and this is, uh, we're going to look at this, we're going to try to look at all of this as kind of a uh, one entity uh, and how these things touch upon God the Son, you know, the theme that we're working on. And within that, salvation, sanctification, and peace this is uh, the longest passage of teaching in the Gospels, with the exception of the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, it, interestingly, uh, if you just count the verses, which I did, <laughs> they're basically the same. They're very close to being exactly the same number of verses. Uh, that, so that's everything here in the John 13? In, in, through, through chapter 17. It starts at 3, 1331 and goes through the okay. end of chapter so 17. Gets rid, of, gets rid of Judas and then he starts the teaching. Yeah. So uh, uh, this allows us a chance to do some compare and contrast then with, uh, with the Sermon of the Mount. And, and this is another way in which it sort of feels like John and Matthew are companion pieces. Um, for instance... The Sermon of the Mount comes near the beginning of Matthew's narrative. Uh, this upper room discourse comes near the end of John's narrative. So uh, there's reason for this. Uh, and the, 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 the reason for it is the second uh, way of comparing that I have here. The Sermon of the Mount is about the right reading of the law which, of course, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, all points to him, uh, all points to the need for the new covenant. Um, the upper room uh, discourse is about the relationship of Christ with his people. Uh, it's the better covenant. And I will read you 1515. Um, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. This is the new covenant. 
no longer uh, the master of the law demanding uh, obedience uh, to you know a, a long list of rules, but it's a covenant of friends. It's a covenant of grace. Uh, Another, another way that uh, we can compare them is that the Sermon on the Mount ends with a state, statement of judgment. Uh, it's several verses, the last you know, maybe dozen verses. Jesus is making warnings about uh, judgment. Uh, the Upper Room Discourse ends with an eloquent prayer of intercession. Uh, the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, and a fourth way. Uh, John's statement of 1248 this is this is what I touched on earlier uh, 1248 he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day there is a similar statement in the Sermon of the Mount uh, and it's within that, uh, that judgment, statement of judgment at the end. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then that's a familiar uh, parable. Um, but those who do reject his words like one who built his house on the sand. So it's the same thing about how his word is what's uh, key here. And uh, it's the words that he's speaking right then and there about himself, about sin guilt, about uh, God offering grace. So, any, I'm going to stop there and uh, anybody have any other ideas or uh, questions or anything? Well, one, uh, it's, I don't think it's any accident that, that both of these represent the teaching given in a physically elevated place. Hmm. Uh, the, the yeah, mouth, yeah. You know, the upper room, they're both, you know, they're both, uh, they're both high. <laughs> right. You know? So, uh, so I, th- I think there, I think that's, you know, that's yeah. by design, you know, that Jesus did that. And, and that's a connection between these two. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, he very specifically chooses the upper room. You know, so. Mm-hmm. And he chose the mountain too. Yeah, Matthew yeah. says when he saw the crowds, he went up into the mountain. When he chose. Anything, any other thoughts? It, it, I will say this is kind of interesting, you know, that there is a, in, in Judea, Judea, they are uh, architects where they discovered five Greek theaters mm-hmm. that were cut out. You know, yeah, amphitheaters? Yeah, amphitheaters. Which a lot of times I think may be you know, we talk about how, how all these people could hear Jesus speaking. And if you are in that kind of domed area, yeah. It's for the acoustics. Your voice carries so much well yeah. echoes down. And so I'm guessing that the mountain I'm not saying it was, a, it was an amphitheater, but it was very similar to something yeah. a natural amphitheater. Yeah. This this has nothing to do with anything, but in the Guthrie's old house on Westmoreland, on, the, on their brick front porch, there was a place you could stand where you could hear yourself echoing, uh, you know, when you spoke. And it was very, very weird acoustics, but there was only one place where that worked on that little brick porch yeah, that they had. The bridge in Tulsa like that, too. Well, you may have uh, mentioned this. 
But another comparison between the two is that it's it's a teaching specifically for his inner circle of disciples. Yeah. Now yeah. it does say at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that there were teachers who marveled at it. So they heard part of it. Yeah. But it also says at the beginning that he went up on the mountain away from the crowds, his disciples came to him and right. they began to teach. Right. It so was really a teaching for his man. for his yeah. disciples. And then the same here, this is in the upper room sort of secluded. It's just, this right. is a teaching yeah. just for you know the twelve. Yeah, that's that's yeah. another good point. Yeah, this, this was well. There were, but the women were there too. Yeah, and, and there may have been others yeah. there, but I mean, the focus obviously yeah. is on it, yeah. not, not those who became apostles. Only the apostles who were there, but it does yeah. seem to be that was the focus. It does seem to be more of an intimate setting. Yeah, in both cases. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is just lump all three plus chapters together. Uh, four plus chapters. And uh, just take them as a whole. So I went through them. And here, here are some of the things, at least some of the things, that the entirety of the passage teaches us. Uh, and first of all, we've, what we've already read, uh, the new commandment, love one another. Uh, it begins to reveal the ascension of Christ. Uh, this is kind of a running theme that he, he goes into and out of. Uh, and it, uh, together with that is him preparing a place uh, for us, but also with us. He will be there with us. Uh, he brings out the relationship of the father and son in the complete agreement and cooperation. He reiter- reiterates that. Uh, he brings out that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He uh, talks, talk, starts talking about sending the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is another running theme, and, and we'll hit this pretty hard here uh, later on. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll focus on this later on. Uh, but it, this is another thing that he hits on and, and leaves and then comes back and leaves and comes back. Uh, he talks about the deep, intimate relationship with believers, between God and believers. He talks about the command going forward, that is, to abide in him and bear fruit uh, he talks about warnings going forward. Uh, he, he tells us that the world will hate us. And I'm going to read specifically here in, in chapter 16, 8 through 11. And when he has come, he's talking here about the Holy Spirit. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is why the world hates us, because we are vessels of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit does all these things to the world, and they hate that. They cannot stand um, the righteousness of Christ, because it it uh, lays bare the world's unrighteousness. It cannot stand. Uh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. It cannot stand to be reminded of their sin. We, as vessels of the Holy Spirit, convict the world of its sin. And it cannot stand that uh, the the ruler of the world is judged. And this this is where the heavenlies come into it. Satan and all of his uh, underlings, the the demons and his human followers, hate that their, uh, their leader is judged. 
So, now we know why the world hates us. <laughs> and it's somewhat automatic. Uh, so, that's... that's uh, and, then, and then we get into... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I left out more than one. Uh, another thing he brings out that he has overcome the world. Uh, the world hates us, but he has overcome the world. And through that, we have peace. Again, he brings peace into the uh, mix. And then we land in chapter 17, and this is the high priestly prayer. And within that prayer, it begins with adoration of the Father. Uh, It moves on to uh, Jesus praying for the apostles. And then he prays for us, the church. So that's just kind of a bird's eye view of the upper room discourse. Uh, So are there any thoughts about about that, anything that needs to be expanded on? You got something, Connor? Not really. I mean, I think, I think, uh, yeah, nothing of significance. It, it strikes me how long this whole event took. Mm-hmm. You know, the Passover was, I mean, first of all, it was over the course of a whole week, but then the meal itself, multiple courses, and yeah. the Eucharist, he pulled the Eucharist out of that. And so I don't know at what point Judas left with which serving of the bread because there was multiple servings, but this prayer goes on for a while. Yeah. So who knows how long we were sitting there? <laughs> they probably were not looking at their watches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They were looking looking at their sand dial, you know. All right. Well, I'm going to start here by reading in uh, chapter 15. Uh, verses 1 through 4. And where I'm going to be just, again, I'm going to be looking at this as to what it says about God the Son. So, uh, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So there is a lot of talk in the Old Testament about vineyards, uh, and it is typically considered to be a uh, symbol or a type of Israel. Uh, For example, Isaiah 5, 4-5 says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you that what I will do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. So obviously that is a statement of judgment uh, about the vineyard Israel. But Jesus is here telling his followers, I am the true vine. I am the real vineyard. Uh, So this continues with John's uh, motif of replacement. Uh, The good thing is uh, replaced by a better thing. So now, you know, all through their history, ever since Jacob, the connection of the Jews to God was the nation Israel. But now God the Son is the new connection. Does that make sense? 
so, any any thoughts about that? Seems like he goes back and forth in this whole section. He'll talk, he'll talk to God, and then he'll talk to his people, and he talks to God. There's like this. Yeah, there's there's at least one psalm that's like that. I want to say it's eighteen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like a three way conversation going on. Yeah. Well, you know, Christ is the image, the icon of God. I mean, that's what an icon does. It's the image. It's the go between. You know, it's right. the facilitator. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's jump to chapter seventeen the prayer, and I'll read 17 through 19. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is, this is Jesus praying. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So obviously there's more here about sanctification. Uh, Jesus, the Logos, was sent into the world to send us into the world. He sealed himself for holy service to seal us for holy service. Um, it is, and this is the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. This is, this is the seal. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, uh, this is verses 21 and 22, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So this is typically taken as the guarantee of our salvation, is the knowledge of the Holy Spirit within us. But it is also the seal of sanctification that uh, makes us able to do his work. Um, And this is Jesus' work as a high priest, which he will demonstrate physically later on. And I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this is one of those mysterious things. This is a reception of the Holy Spirit uh, before Pentecost. But I think we can at least accept this as the seal Jesus sealing them because he knows that there's going to be 50 days before Pentecost comes. But he has sealed them even before then by, as the high priest, breathing the Holy Spirit on them. Yes, the, the Greek word, Greg's not here, so I'll have to bring this up. <laughs> the Greek word there is emphaseo, which is used only one other time in in scripture, and I guess this would be in the Septuagint, uh, and it is when God breathes life into Adam. So, let's let's move on then to uh, verses 20 through 23. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So, uh, 
there's a lot going on about here uh, uh, about unity, this mysterious uh, unity of us and him and the Father uh, understood here as the Holy Spirit, you know, that is in the mix as well. Uh, this is really an intimate relationship of God the Son uh, with one hand on the Father's shoulder and the other hand on our shoulder or the, the Apostle's shoulder and by extension us as well. Uh, this is the lament of Job that I need a mediator. You know, who, who can put his hand on God's shoulder and on my shoulder and, 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 and mediate? So it is God the Son. Um, and somehow uh, there's also a mention here of shared glory. That we will share in the glory of, of the Godhead. Uh, so it's all very mysterious. And, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, watching it and, and seeing how it works out, works itself out. Um, so, anyway, this is the high priestly prayer, okay? And uh, the events have ended. Uh, the, the, the thematic events have ended. And what we're about to get into is the passion, the actual real work. Um, but there is still... Uh, well, let me go ahead and do this. Uh, read you 14, verse 3. Uh, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So uh, this is where the hints of Jesus' ascension are, and they lead to verse 28 in that chapter. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Uh, so this includes the promise of his return. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it can be taken as uh, the death and resurrection, but also the ascension and uh, the second advent. And the promise uh, of his ascension couples with the promise of sending the helper. Uh, in verse 16, that chapter, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Okay, and then uh, again in 25 and 26, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So we've got, we've got the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit are essential to each other. And this leads us into the next theme. Okay. Uh, this is all kind of a jumbled mess, but the events that that open up into themes are are over. But there's still another theme to be seen here within this teaching, and uh, that is that theme is uh, in chapter 16, and it is uh, the logos came to prepare the way to, uh, for the fulfillment of Pentecost. Uh, this is the second annual feast time that Jesus addresses as he works backwards. 
uh, you remember from chapter 7, he dealt with the Feast of Tabernacles and uh, with that the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets. And, and now it is time for him to uh, work out the fulfillment of Pentecost. And for that, I will read verses uh, 7 through 15 of chapter 16. What chapter? 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I, do, I go to my Father and, and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things uh, to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So, uh, the first references to the Holy Spirit coming uh, are in 1416 and then again in 1526. But here in this passage, uh, the Holy Spirit gets full attention. You know, Jesus really opens up the spigot on that, in this passage that I just read. And we see within that all the work that we are supposed to do. You know, glorify, understand the scripture, glorify the Father, glorify the Son, uh, receive what belongs to the Son because the Father has given it to him. All of this stuff is uh, enabled by the Holy Spirit, and it would not be possible without the Holy Spirit. And we cannot receive the Spirit unless Jesus ascends to the Father. So this all works together, you know, as our sanctification. And again, uh, uh, the uh, main focus of what we're supposed to do is convict the world, disciple the church, and glorify Christ. Uh, so now, uh, before, before closing out, I'll go ahead and uh, read uh, verse 16. A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Uh, this is Jesus uh, leaving. This is, this is actually the verse where you can bring in both the death and resurrection and the ascension and the second coming. Uh, he, Jesus is leaving, but he promises to return. Uh, uh, both result in joy. He tells the, uh, the apostles, they, this ought to bring you joy. Uh, and if you understood, you would. You would be joyful. Uh, so again, Pentecost is the second major feast that he lays claim to. Here, going in backwards order. That leaves one more feast time to fulfill. And so he gets to work. And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 18. So I know that's a lot to throw at you at the end of the, at the, end of the Sunday school hour. But any, any thoughts or, or questions or anything concerning any of that? I like the tie-in. I don't know because I've always just thought of that as the, uh, 
death and resurrection. It's that short period of time. I can see it really. Yeah, it's double edged. Right yeah, yeah, yeah. We can we can claim the, these verses for ourselves, just you know, just as the apostles could, if they had only understood. Uh, you feel bad for them that this was all left for a mystery. I mean, for that one Saturday, that one Sabbath, they had to, to spend in hiding. You know, <coughs> incredible grief and, and you know shock. So. Any other they had, thoughts? They had a lot to hang on to, man. You know, think about it. So yeah, I mean, if, all these all <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, when we pick up uh, next week, it'll be in chapter eighteen. So, thanks. Thanks for sitting today.